mm-hmm. save ourselves, the homes in which they live, but just the forests in general provide a significant amount of the oxygen we breathe. 75% of all fresh water comes from forest grasslands and mountains. Welcome to the third episode of the Save the Wild podcast, brought to you by Nature's Path and Kids Cereals. I'm your host, Brad Nahill, president of Sea Turtles, and you just heard from one of our guests today, wildlife photographer Steve Winter. For this episode, we're changing our focus from sea turtles to tigers, where we will talk with Sharon Gynup and Steve, dynamic partners who have covered some of the most pressing issues relating to tigers and other big cats around the world. They'll share stories about captive tigers in the U.S. and Thailand, along with working to study and protect tigers in places like India and Myanmar. Please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast on your favorite platform. That really makes a big difference in our ability to reach more people. This episode's commentary will focus on racism and racial justice in the environmental movement. Like every other sector of society, environmental and conservation organizations are not immune to both systemic racism and a lack of diversity. As a cisgender white male, I'm not going to pretend to be an expert on this issue, but personally, I'm glad to see this reckoning happening better late than never. Every conservation organization I've worked for has had a lack of diversity. That includes both staff and leadership, including boards of directors. At one point years ago, I was asked for one organization I worked with to join a diversity working group on this issue. I was not the right person for that task, and the work didn't go anywhere, much to my and I believe everyone else's frustration who was involved with that effort. From my experience, there are three major areas that the environmental community needs to grapple with. One is its history, which has its share of racists that are just now being reckoned with. Second is a lack of diversity and power in U.S.-based groups. And third is how organizations that work internationally interact with the people who live in the places where their work is done, which is generally organizations from the U.S. and Europe working in the developing world. On the first issue, many in the early conservation community also believed in white supremacy. I was encouraged to see the Sierra Club step up and start a process to acknowledge the problematic views of its founder, John Muir, who wrote ugly things about both black people and indigenous peoples. I'll link to a fantastic Washington Post on this issue in the show notes. Also, John James Audubon, creator of the Audubon Society, was a slaveholder who espoused white supremacy, and that organization seems to be trying to reconcile that as well. And that's an encouraging thing to see, even though many people have called out these organizations in the past. On the lack of diversity within environmental organizations, that has been clear to even the most casual observer over the past few decades. I don't pretend to have any great issues on solving that problem, but encouraged to see a number of the bigger donors in the field put a bigger emphasis on supporting smaller groups run by people of color over the traditional big green groups that tend to get the lion's share of available funding. On the issue of how U.S.-based conservation groups that work internationally, a lot of work needs to be done there as well. Too often these organizations send in people from the U.S. to manage local programs and don't take the needs and priorities of local communities seriously enough. The history of sea turtle conservation is full of white male researchers going to developing countries with good intentions finding important nesting beaches, and convincing the government to create protected areas that keep people out who have been living off of these animals for generations. Now, I'm not against protected areas. I think they have some really great value, and I think a lot of wild animals have been protected because of them. But these programs and reserves need to benefit nearby communities and those most impacted by the loss of income or sources of food. Often the result of this has been conflict between conservation efforts and local communities where nobody benefits, including the turtles and other wild animals. Too often these organizations neglect to invest in building the capacity in the local communities where they work. I'll also share a link to an excellent article on what is termed colonial science, written by a researcher from Sri Lanka. But in short, this lack of investment leaves conservation work vulnerable during things like a pandemic and can exacerbate conflicts with local communities. 
In addition, many field programs, due to a lack of funding, are not able to pay for young researchers to work at their projects, which is a barrier for advancement for those students who can't afford to pay their travel and work for free. From the outset with my organization, Sea Turtles, my colleague and co-founder Jay Nichols and I decided that we didn't want to initiate new sea turtle conservation programs in other countries, but instead work to benefit locally run projects and communities by bringing travelers and volunteers to participate in the work and spend money in these communities. We then expanded that to include funding for important nesting beaches with strong community involvement, like you heard about on the last episode with the ICAPO program in Nicaragua and El Salvador. So how is my organization, Sea Turtles, participating in this reckoning? With my wonderful board of directors, we're evaluating a number of areas where we can contribute to racial equity in our field. We've sharing articles on this issue and supporting Black Lives Matter through our social media, but this is the easy part. In terms of staff, I'm the sole full-time employee of the organization, so there is not much we can do in the short term. We are looking at expanding and diversifying our board, which is currently made up of two white Americans along with one researcher from Nicaragua and another from Spain. Going further, we are exploring a way to support diverse college students early in their studies by providing scholarships to do field work, a critical way to build a resume and experience. We are also pushing the sea turtle community to focus on racial justice issues. We asked the International Sea Turtle Society, an overarching group uh, made up of many people working in this field, to address the issue, which they did with a statement that in my opinion was frankly lacking, but which was also followed up by a commitment to provide funding for turtle projects in developing countries, which is great and my organization has offered to match those grants. Finally, we are working on an idea to provide additional funding for turtle projects that promote racial diversity and local participation through our existing Billion Baby Turtles grant program. Will these efforts solve the issue? No, but we will keep working to improve both our own work and that of our larger community. If you have any feedback for us on this issue or want to get involved, get in touch by emailing me at brad at seeturtles.org. That's S-E-E turtles.org. I'm really excited to share this next interview with you. I've been fascinated by tigers since I was young, and if you pressed me, I would frankly would pick them over sea turtles as my favorite animal. Today we speak with Sharon Gynup and Steve Winter. Sharon Gynup is an investigative journalist, author, photographer, and video producer who has covered environmental issues for Nat Geo, The New York Times, Smithsonian, and many other outlets. She is currently a public policy fellow with the Wilson Center's Environmental Change and Security and China Environment Programs. She's produced stories on issues from fracking and pollution to wildlife ecosystems and the threats that they face, including investigations into the Tiger Temple in Thailand and a recent article on captive tigers in the U.S., which we will discuss. Her work has earned her the American Society of Journalists and Authors Arlene Award for an article that makes a difference as well as awards from the Society of Professional Journalists. Steve Winter is a wildlife photojournalist who has covered big cats and other wildlife for National Geographic magazine since 1991. He's produced stories on the Quetzal in Guatemala, on Cuba's wildlife, and Russia's giant brown bears in Kamchatka. But his central focus has been on the world's big cats. He's shot feature stories about tigers, the complex relationship between humans and leopards, snow leopards in the Himalayas, mountain lions in the U.S., and jaguars across the Americas. His work has been recognized with awards including BBC Wildlife Photographer of the Year, first prize in the Nature Story category from World Press Photo twice, and he was also two-time winner of the Picture of the Year International's Global Vision Award. Together, Sharon and Steve co-authored the book Tigers Forever, Saving the World's Most Endangered Big Cat, which I personally own and highly recommend anyone out there who's interested in learning more about these animals. And I'm really excited to have both of you on the podcast. Thank you guys for joining us. Well, thank you, Brad, for, for having us. Yeah, thanks for having us. So Sharon, let's start with you. You recently wrote an article about captive tigers and facilities in the United States for National Geographic that came out before the whole Tiger King craze. 
Uh, one thing that seems to have gotten lost as a result of that show is the difference between a roadside zoo and a true sanctuary. Can you talk about that and how people can tell the difference and avoid the former and, and support the latter? Certainly. Um, that story was the result of a two-year investigation by both Steve and I. Um, we traveled across the country uh, to visit dozens of um, roadside zoos and sanctuaries. Um, for the first 18 months, we were undercover. The last six months, uh, we revealed ourselves and you know talked to people on every side of this issue, from people who worked at um, tiger cub petting venues, roadside zoos, to, you know, government officials, to sanctuary owners, um, many, many others, uh, you, you know, U.S. Fish and Wildlife agents. Um, and, you know, what we found is that there are between 5,000 and 10,000 captive tigers in the United States, and they're so poorly documented by the government that we really don't know how many they are. But the large, large majority are bred for this pay-to-play, you know, cub petting, bottle feeding um, industry. Um, and they are run strictly by unaccredited roadside zoos. And once those cubs are too big to pet, they're discarded or, you know, put into these, you know, fast track breeding programs where almost like puppy mills where tigers are just bred and bred and bred. It's an abusive industry, and um, a true sanctuary does not engage in these activities. So if, if a place is breeding, it's not a sanctuary, regardless of its name. Many roadside zoos, many of these pay-to-play venues claim to be nonprofits. They claim to be rescues. Um, they may even be registered nonprofits. However, if anyone... If there's hands-on contact between the public and wild animals, it is not a sanctuary. Likewise, true sanctuaries do not breed animals. They keep animals for life. They provide proper veterinary care. Um, so if any of those boxes are not ticked off, um, this is truly uh, a roadside zoo, a money-making operation. It is not a rescue. The thing that surprised me was the connection between these facilities here in the U.S. and the illegal wildlife trade. Can you talk about how that's connected? There's a great deal of criminality involved in these pet uh, cub petting venues. Um, first and foremost, they need to have young cubs to pet for the amount of time they're open, whether it's you know spring, summer, fall, whether it's year round. And those cubs time out at 16 weeks. At that point, they're too big and dangerous to pet and you need the next crop. So, you know, they're not only constantly breeding, but they're constantly trading with other facilities. It's illegal to um, sell tigers across state lines. It's an endangered species. It's covered under the Endangered Species Act and the Lacey Act. So, you know, many of these venues you know, cash only. They write donation on on the uh, USDA forms that are involved with transport. Um, so that is illegal wildlife trafficking right there. Um, there also has been an industry uh, in sale of, of tiger parts and products. In fact, during our investigation, I discovered one situation where a man had shipped 68 packages to Thailand that contained tiger parts, lion parts, um, ivory, and other endangered species products. Um, so we always hear a lot about the Asian trade, right? That you know deals in all kinds of exotic and endangered species products mainly going to China, but also to Vietnam, to Laos, uh, to other Southeast Asian countries. But there are documented um, occurrences in the past years of the U.S. exporting wildlife products. And, you know, that includes tiger products, tiger skins, tiger bones, tiger teeth to Asia. So that is quite 
um, a disturbing development in wildlife trade that the U.S. is now acting as a supplier. That's really horrifying. Um, you know, talking about this reminds me of an experience that I had in college where I was volunteering at uh, where I went to school at Penn State with the school environmental club. And we organized a group of people to go and visit and do some volunteer work at a sanctuary that received um, zoo and circus animals after they retired. And I was walking along a gated area. So there was a, an indoor area where some of the cats were held. And then they had you know fully caged outdoor area and then a buffer and then another gate. And I was walking down that and I see a tiger just poking its head out of the door, looking at me very intensely. And from growing up with cats, I, I recognized this behavior as, as possibly play. And so I crouched down and I started kind of stalking a little bit along this uh, outer gate. And the tiger came bounding out of this hole, uh, out of the, you know, the indoor area into the out, its outer area and jumped up against the gate and its tail was wagging. And, you know, I would move one way and it would follow me and I would move another way. And, and it really seemed like it was playing with me. And I spoke to one of the people who worked there and he said, yeah, he is playing with you. He's really, really playful, um, really, really friendly. But if you got in there, he'd probably kill you just from wanting to to play with you. Um, I know that some of these uh, roadside zoos that allow these kinds of petting opportunities can also be dangerous for people. Yeah, the, there was a cat that I was photographing that was being led around on a leash and was in the uh, main house where they fed many of the animals uh, and prepared their foods and things like that. And uh, so I was photographing it and I told the people with my knowledge of wild tigers that uh, I was going to get low to get an eye to eye view of it and it may come after me. And uh, after a few times we were outside and they actually lost the leash and this 280 pound cat came and, you know, grabbed my arm in its mouth. I turned away and there's a whole video of this um, that because my son was there and I didn't know he was filming because he hadn't been, but I got away and there wasn't a problem, but it was playing. But as a year and a half, uh, old cat and 280 pounds, it is dangerous because playing or not, they're big animals and they're used to playing with other tigers. And uh, so it is a dangerous thing to be doing. And let's face it, an animal of that size and strength, even just batting at you, it, it right. could you know break your neck. Um, that, that video went viral. There were about 10 million views on National Geographic Instagram, and it was picked up by news outlets across the world. And this was a Thai liger. It was a lion-tiger hybrid that then had been bred back to a tiger. And that's, you know, that is one other dark side of, of this industry to attract tourists. Um, you know, many of these breeders are creating animals, these chimera beings that do not exist in nature, and they have serious health problems. It's a big, big issue. Um, in fact, you know, many animals at these roadside zoos are terribly inbred and poorly cared for and, um, you know, very, very sick and, and mistreated animals. You can never forget that tigers are apex predators. You know, even our house cats, when, you know, kittens are jumping around chasing a toy, they're practicing hunting. Um, there is no way a tiger can ever be domesticated. They are dangerous animals. And um, because of that, um, there has been a new piece of legislation introduced into both the House and uh, the Senate called the Big Cat Public Safety Act. And what it would do would um, it would prohibit private ownership, 
you know, people would no longer be able to have a tiger in their backyard as a pet, which believe it or not, is totally legal in some parts of, of the U.S. There's no federal law uh, regulating ownership. But that law would also make it illegal for the public to have hands-on contact with big cats. Um, so that would, you know, do two things. It would not only protect the public, but it would also um, stop this, you know, breeding, dumping, uh, very abusive cycle uh, uh, involved in this hands-on cub petting industry. And I did see that video. Steve, you were not seriously injured from that, though, correct? No, I wasn't. Um, just from my experience in the wild, as soon as it had my arm, I turned away. And, you know, you had people commenting on Instagram about don't turn your back. Well, you would never do that in the wild. But if you're in that situation, you don't have a second chance. You're, you're a goner. So I just wanted to get away from him. And you have to notice that it had claws and I was wearing a down coat and he never ripped through the uh, outer skin of the coat. So he was just playing. He did give me a good kidney punch on, the, on my <laughs> left kidney because my son asked later on, we were at a Mexican restaurant. He was like, well, how do you feel? And it's like, I thought it was okay, but you know, <laughs> my left side hurts a little bit. So that is very interesting. But one thing I have to bring up about this is a lot of people go to these places and are bombarded by the word conservation, that these roadside zoos are involved in conserving animals. And if you come there, the tigers you are with are somehow going to help conservation. There has never been a captive bred tiger ever successfully released into the wild. Obviously, none of these tigers in the United States are ever going to make it to India. But there was a guy in South Africa that started a program and the Indian government had no wants nothing to do with it. So it doesn't even work in India where you raise a, a cub or something whose mother had been killed and they successfully release it into the wild. So as there is no conservation value to these animals. And, and that's a really important point because many of, of these venues, you know, say that by paying, you know, sometimes really extraordinary amounts of money for these experiences up to $700, um, you know, you're contributing to conservation in the wild. And, and again, once, uh, cats are habituated to humans, they're drawn to human villages. Then they, you know, prey on cattle, which is people's, you know, livelihood. And, you know, human wildlife conflict ensues. But the one other thing is that these cats are all crossbred and inbred. You know, there many of them are Bengal-Siberian mixes. They're equivalent of mutts and inbred with health issues and, you know, pulled from their mother at birth and then fed poorly. So these are very sick cats that in no way uh, contribute to conservation. And that's a really important point because that is the way that many roadside zoos legitimize what they're doing. Yeah, that's a really good thing to, to point out. There are quite a few. In fact, um, it wasn't one of your guys' articles, but there was a, a really well done, I thought, article in National Geographic recently about some of the wildlife attractions around the world and how they claim to support conservation, um, but are really tourist traps that, right. that have nothing to do with conservation or animal welfare or, or, or anything like that. No, it's a prevalent problem that uh, any of these locations, just like the difference between a roadside zoo and a true sanctuary, if you have hands-on, if there's animal shows and all that, it, they are just uh, places that you should not visit. Yeah, and it even impacts some of the work that we do, where we take people to work hands-on with sea turtle research and conservation projects because of the you know, the poorly one, the bad ones, you know, give a bad name to the ones like the organizations that we work with who are doing it correctly in our actual conservation. Right, right. So that's something I'd like to add. You know, if people do their research, um, there are, you know, well-accredited true sanctuaries 
that are saving these discarded and abused animals. And especially now amidst the pandemic, you know, they need support and they do run, some of them do run tours. I mean, just like a, an, a you know, a more accredited zoo would, no hands-on contact. There's tours that really don't disturb the animals. They do uh, take donations. It's very, very important to support the people that are truly, you know, saving these animals. Um, one place to look is the Global Federation of Animal Sanctuaries. And then there's also the Big Cat Sanctuary Alliance. So people can, you know, go on those websites and and find accredited sanctuaries that really do need support. So many of these places around the world, and specifically in the United States, have sanctuary in their name, but they're far from a sanctuary. They breed, they have hands-on contact, and they're there to make money off of uh, selfies with cubs and other animals. And you can't necessarily, you know, determine which are the good ones and which are the bad ones. There's there's some roadside zoos that are really funky and you know they're roadside zoos, but there are some um, cub petting venues that are really slick operations and they're really well done and you wouldn't see the animal abuse up front. It's more what goes on behind the scenes that, that people never see. So uh, again, it's really important to do research. Speaking of that, Sharon, you've also written about another infamous captive tiger facility uh, a few years ago, the Tiger Temple in Thailand, which I believe now no longer exists, but that some of that stuff continues on in, in other ways. Can you tell us a little bit about that investigation and where things are with the situation in Thailand for, for captive tigers? Well, after Steve and I produced um, our book, Tigers Forever, a woman named Sybil Foxcroft reached out to me. She's uh, She is an Australian woman who had been investigating the Tiger Temple for some years. And she told me that she had the beginnings of some evidence that would prove that the Tiger Temple was breeding animals that were then shipped into the illegal wildlife trade in Asia, to Laos and to China. So um, we started what became a year-long investigation that Steve also worked on, and we were able to prove that the Tiger Temple, which was a Buddhist monastery that doubled as a tiger tourism attraction and brought in $3 million a year just from tourism, let alone the trafficking they were doing, they were indeed uh, shipping tigers you know, to tiger farms that were breeding uh, tigers for their parts and products in Laos and also were shipping tigers to China. So within four months of, of Stephen, my story and a multimedia piece being published by National Geographic in January 2016, the Thai government was under you know such pressure to investigate that they went in, they confiscated all 178 tigers that were there and shut the place down. And what they discovered was, you know, far more macabre than anything we would have imagined. They found 40 cubs frozen in the kit, the industrial freezers in the kitchen, another 20 cubs, you know, preserved in large glass jars, the tiger skins, tiger skin necklaces, you know, all kinds of, of, um, all kinds of parts and products that were slipping into the trade. So that was shut down. Um, however, you know, there are other venues in uh, Thailand that still are doing exactly the same thing. And uh, there's a lot of captive tigers in Thailand. They are, you know, breeding and shipping live and dead tigers, you know, into the, the trade ultimately headed for China, which is the largest consumer of of tiger products, both skins and bones that are used in tiger bone wine. Uh, Thailand, I think, may be one of the largest markets for uh, hands-on wildlife tourism in the world. Um, it's not just tigers, it's, it's, you know, many other species as well. So it's not like the problem is solved, but that, that specific, you know, venue was closed and it brought a great deal of attention to this issue. But I, I think with the Tiger Temple, one of the biggest problems with that is people become complacent 
in things that they hear and the fact that it was a Buddhist temple and monks wouldn't do this. And if they're breeding in 365 days a year, you could pet or bottle feed a cub. What happens to those animals when they get too old to do that? Just like in the U.S. operation. And people weren't asking that question or answering it. And it went on for years and years before we came in. So, and, and this was totally driven by social media. Yeah. You know, posing with a cub. Look at me, right? Um, people were posting as the picture came. They got the picture, posted it as they were next to these tigers that, as you said, had to be drugged because you couldn't take this huge head of a, you know, mutt tiger, a tiger mixed with all kinds of other species of tiger that was huge and just drop its head in somebody's lap and have nothing happen. It was never, there was never was any toxicological tests proving uh, that the t the tigers were drugged, but the behavior made it seem quite likely. Right. Yeah, and with the cubs, I remember from the article, what they would do is when the cubs would get too old, suddenly that cub would disappear, and then all of a sudden there'd be a new cub with that same name. Well, that's a that's a technique that's even used here in the U.S. Um, you know, cubs are whisked away from their mothers, um, maybe raised in in homes of either the the zoo owner or a worker. So when, you know, uh, inspectors come in, those, those cubs don't exist. Uh, and they suddenly take on the name of, of one of their predecessors. Uh, so it, it's an easy way to, to hide the turnover. This seems like a good moment to plug journalism in general and the power of journalism and in particular the power of publications like National Geographic to educate people and to create change. Yeah, I'm sure a lot of the people who will be listening to this podcast grew up with subscriptions to National Geographic. I highly recommend re-upping that subscription and continuing to support this kind of journalism because it's a, it's a tough time right now for journalism in general. And these kinds of stories are so vital to get out there. And so publications like National Geographic need everybody's support. So head over to their website and subscribe again if you're not currently a, a subscriber. And the Tiger Temple was very important with uh, all the whole idea of not giving up. I mean, Sharon kept writing articles till something happened. And it's like you can give the story and put it out to the world. But if there's more to be done, you know, our responsibility is to see it to the end, give the governments enough information to act and by putting it out in the media. And that's what happened with the Tiger Temple story. You know, the Tiger Temple was an example where our story started a wave. Right. If, if other outlets didn't pick up on it, if nonprofit organizations didn't then place pressure, if global tiger experts didn't reach out to the government, there wouldn't have been action. It was strictly because that information was put out there, then other people acted. And it that's what generated change. Uh, so it was, it was a, kind of a right place at the right time, right information, you know, Sybil Foxcroft was an amazing collaborator. Um, you know, it just, um, it was important to, to bring that to public consciousness. You know, we're, we're not advocates. That's, yeah. that's somebody else's job. It, it's our job to, to dig in, investigate, write, report, photograph. And, and once that information is out there, then society can, can decide, you know, what's important and where change is needed and how that should happen. So yeah, I wanted to move on to uh, talking about tigers in the wild. Steve, I've mentioned to you before that uh, I was a very big fan of the work and the writing of your former colleague at Panthera, the late uh, Dr. Alan Rabinowitz. Um, and I was really sorry to hear about his passing you know, a couple of years ago. Uh, you accompanied him on visits to Myanmar and other places to help document tigers, uh, which resulted, if I'm correct, I don't know if it still is, but at the time at least was the world's largest tiger reserve and a place with the foreboding name of the Valley of Death. 
Can you talk a little bit about that experience and what it's like to visit some of the most remote places in the world to photograph big cats? Yeah, um, you know, I met Alan because I had finished uh, a story for Nat Geo and then another, and I was looking for the next story, and I'd read an article about Alan visiting the U.S.-Mexican border because a rancher, Werner Glenn, had photographed the first jaguar in the United States, and Alan went down there to do some work, you know, check into Native American archives, see if they had any history in their uh, beliefs of a spotted cat, I found out that Nat Geo had never done a Jaguar story in its history. And uh, Sharon said to me, uh, don't you figure in 107 years, I think it was then, if Nat Geo has never done a Jaguar story, there's probably a pretty good reason why. And she was 100% correct. But that's when I called Alan and asked him that question because he'd written his book, Jaguar, and uh, really opened up the, his life, his personal life, his scientific life, his family life to the whole world and showed what it was like being a conservation scientist in the field. And I asked him point blank whether he thought it could be done using remote cameras at the time. And uh, so that that's how we first met. I went up to see him and uh, it was a long relationship came of that uh, first meeting. And then I started working on Jaguars and that kind of led me to the first goal of working on a story, seeing problems in this instance, cowboys killing Jaguars and then trying to find a way to help the animal that you're photographing because why spend so much time in the field and trust me on that first Jaguar story, I spent way too much time in the field being unsuccessful. And then when you find that cowboys are killing Jags by where I eventually ended up, which was in the Pantanal of Brazil, um, I called Alan because he had hired the scientist I was working with. And I said, you ought to do a GPS satellite college study because then you could show the ranchers themselves where these cats are that they think were killing their cows and find out, you know, how many cattle were being killed. When the project was done, they found only 1% of cattle deaths could be attributed to jaguars. The project was a great success, gave ranchers real information. And then after that, Alan asked me if I wanted to go to Myanmar. You know, most of the projects he was working on there were surveys. Like the first one we did in Kakabarazi, way in the far north, was to find the northernmost range of the snow leopard and tiger, or, or even leopards in, in Myanmar. And then on the way back, he pointed out the window and said, you should do a story on this new place we're working at. It's the Hukong Valley or the Valley of Death. <laughs> and, uh, and he said, I should ride it. And so, you know, we, I came back to the U.S. and I proposed the story and proposed Alan as a writer. And uh, usually, you know, the writing department was going to pick their own writer, but he end, ended up writing the story and, and, and we did it. And again, it was a survey. He was at Wildlife Conservation Society then. And they had a team of people putting scientific camera traps or trail cams in the forest to quantify the existence of this park, how many different species of animals there were, uh, whether they had tigers, and then they started IDing tigers by their stripes there also. And it was quite a uh, exciting place. My first time in an Asian forest, though I never ever saw a tiger. The, the really important upshot of that work is that a lot of gold miners had moved into the area and were really ripping it apart. And after that article came out, which included that information, the Burmese government went in, kicked out all the miners, and in that area created the largest tiger reserve in the world. So again, it's, it's another example of the impact that the media can have. Right. It's been a little while since I 
read that book. From what I remember, you were also, or maybe it was just Alan, meeting with uh, some of the indigenous communities of that area to talk to them about these animals and their experiences with them and how they felt about a potential reserve. Is that, am I remembering that correctly? Oh, no, 100% correct. But, you know, the people that spoke to were the Kachin and the Kachin Independence Army was in the center of the reserve. I mean, that was the toughest jungle to this day I think I've ever been into. Very thick. Uh, the Burma Road or the Lido Road ran through the, that they built in World War II, and it was open, and then the war ended. But uh, uh, so many people died trying to create that world because it's a very tough jungle. But uh, it was, you know, to get everybody on board was difficult and uh, the leader of the Kachin Independence Army said his men were not poaching uh, animals or hunting and then Alan handed them over I'll never forget that a bunch of four by six prints of his guys going in with guns and coming out with their guns and uh, dead animals so and the guy just kind of walked away and went to talk to his men but uh yeah, to try to get everybody to work together to understand that protecting this area would give them better hunting on, in the buffer zones was very important. And in the end, I think they understood it, but there was a uh, civil war that came afterwards. So I, I haven't really kept up on what happened to it. I did for years afterwards, but... Um, yeah, it's it's a tough situation, but an incredibly beautiful area. For a while there, it really seemed like Burma, Myanmar, whatever you decide to call it, was coming around and becoming more democratic. But unfortunately, it seems like it's slipped back uh, in the last few years. So I think a, a really important note is that animals uh, don't recognize borders. They're right. not political. And Alan was really cognizant of that and realized that regardless of who was governing a region, protecting wildlife, protecting nature, protecting biodiversity was not only important for species and the planet, but that it also was important to human survival. And he, he was able to engage a wide, wide scope of, of stakeholders and, and uh, regardless of political affiliation or, you know, nationality and, and was able to really save a lot of, uh, of land and, and species as a result. Steve, another photo essay that I wanted to bring up was your visit to Keziranga National Park in India. This park has the highest density of tigers in the world, at least it it did when, when you visited. Can you talk a bit about how the researchers and conservationists there are succeeding where you know tigers are declining in, in other places? Yeah, I mean, tigers are not necessarily declining in India themselves. There are issues with some of the subspecies, but in the end, India has the vast majority of tigers left in the world, the Bengal tigers. Um, the reason that Kaziranga's tigers are protected so well, biologically, they act differently than other tigers. So they cross each other's home range because they have a very narrow park in which they reside. And the reason they, they are protected is because of the trade in rhino horn. So the rhinos are protected. And if you protect one large iconic species like the rhino, you're going to protect the tiger also. It's much easier for poachers to come in and kill a rhino and hack off its horn real quickly and get out. It's virtually impossible to uh, kill a tiger and get it out unless it's outside the park already. Um, but tigers and many of the species, except during the monsoon, which is right now, stay within the park area primarily. So that's why Kaziranga is so successful. And it's in the northeastern uh, state of Assam in India. And uh, the protection of rhinos has become very, very successful. 
And so the tigers are protected also, which is fantastic. And the tigers live as in centuries past because it's a historic landscape where they live with this other megafauna. Like it's got the highest population left of Asian elephants, the highest population left of wild water buffalo, all these species of deer and this really high elephant grass. And uh, the rhinos have really bounced back because Kaziranga was created in 1905 to protect Indian rhino, one-horned rhino. And now uh, they're doing really well and even moving some out to be populated. Other parks that no longer have rhinos like Corbett area and the Triarch in northern India. Well, so following on that, and this question is for you know, both of you or either of you, but you know, talking about the future for these animals, you know, with so few of them left, with so many threats and pressures on them, are you hopeful for their future? And you know, what can people do that are listening um, to help support their protection? Well, I am hopeful because you have to be hopeful about this whole thing. I mean, India is doing a uh, incredible job when you look at everything involved. Yes, there are major problems with infrastructure projects being uh, implemented even after they've been stopped for decades in tiger reserves because they exist in some of the wildest areas, areas left in India. Some of them have coal beneath them or other minerals. I, I really do believe that the Indian government and its people will never see the tiger disappear. But it is tenuous because the, their numbers are not really high. And there are problems amongst the other subspecies also. Well, and, and we can't forget the barrage of threats that face wildlife, not just tigers. You know, it, it, there is habitat loss. There's poaching, you know, in the seas, overfishing. There's illegal wildlife trade. There's there's climate change that is ripping apart ecosystems. So I think we need to save whatever wild areas we can. Uh, we need to address the demand that drives illegal international wildlife trade, ranks fourth after the illegal trade in, in guns, drugs, and, and human trafficking, and is run by the same international syndicates that traffic in those other commodities. And you can't forget that wildlife is just another commodity, you know, for um, international crime syndicates. So if we can stop the demand and it's no longer worth so much money, we can really uh, address uh, the poaching issue. And for tigers, it's one of the two major threats that is, is going to determine whether they do survive or not. So, yes, it, it's good to have hope, but, you know, it's good to be a realist and we need to address the issues to make sure that, you know, future generations do have have tigers in the wild. You mentioned earlier the Big Cat Public Safety Act that's currently up in the U.S. Congress that people can advocate for. Um, can you talk a little bit about that and, and other ways that people can support conservation of big cats and tigers and wildlife in general? Again, if people are concerned about the issue of U.S. tigers, you know, which does have impact on the world stage because we are complicit in that we're allowing illegal trade and intensive breeding on our soil, which gives cover for two true tiger farms that are breeding tigers for their parts and products kind of like pigs and chickens in China, in Thailand, in Laos, and in Vietnam. Tigers that are literally bred to be butchered for their parts right. in violation of an international treaty, the Convention on International Trade and Endangered Species. So, you know, the U.S. can't have any conservation voice on the world stage to protect tigers until we kind of get our own out-of-control situation in hand. And that's why the U.S. captive tiger situation matters. In terms of international conservation, the one thing that I like to remind people is that don't just take the 
easy way if you're going to donate money. A lot of people just go for the biggest names, the largest conservation organizations. There are a lot of small organizations, local organizations that are doing an incredible job protecting their animals. And they make great use of whatever money is donated. You know, for example, the Wildlife Protection Society of India has the largest wildlife crime database and assists police in tracking poachers, has led to so many arrests and confiscations and has prevented a lot of poaching incidents. A a medium-sized organization, the Environmental Investigation Agency, does phenomenal tiger work. If people really do their research and, and find the organizations that are really making a difference, you know, direct your, your money there and you can really have impact. Great. Yeah, we'll be sure to include links to some of these organizations that you mentioned in the show notes. So, you know, folks, if you're interested in, in supporting any of them, that will make that uh, real easy for you. And yeah, be sure to get in touch with your representatives about the Big Cat Public Safety Act because it's really horrifying. We didn't get too much into it, but the near complete lack of any kind of regulation of these facilities is really stunning and really, really needed and important and shouldn't be a big political issue. Um, So hopefully we can get that passed through. So we'll be sure to include a link. And I think it's really important that we look at the planet in a holistic sense that the health of the ecosystems that keep us and all species alive, the health of animals and the health of humans are all inextricably linked. Nature is perfection and we need to understand, especially now that the trade in endangered species and other animals in these live markets is very dangerous, zoonotic diseases. And what we're doing with our forests by cutting them down and getting closer and closer to places, wild places and animals that we hadn't in the past and just understand the One Health idea. It's not only that we're bringing humans, livestock and wildlife into contact like never before, Before. swapping microbes that we have no immunity to, but international travel and trade, you know, as we've seen with COVID, can spread uh, a new emerging disease around the globe and, and look at where we are now. But it's bigger than that. You know, wild places, they buffer from flooding. They clean the water that we need to drink. Pull you know, carbon from they the atmosphere. Pull car- yeah, the, they protect against climate change. You know, we, we need a functioning, healthy planet to survive. So there's the conservation and the biodiversity importance, but for our own survival, by saving nature, we're also saving ourselves. Absolutely. Well, thank you for stating that case so eloquently. Um, I think that's a great place to wrap up. Um, Thank you both for joining. This was a really fun conversation, really important issues here. And uh, I hope some of the listeners out there, you know, feel compelled to learn more about these places, these animals, and how they can help. So thanks so much. Stay safe. Thanks for having us. Thank you, Brad, for the work you do, and, and thank you for including us in your series. Thank you for listening to this episode. We hope you enjoyed it. A big thanks to Sharon and Steve for their time and to Nature's Path Enviro Kids for their extraordinary support. To learn more about our organization, visit seeturtles.org. And again, please do us a big favor and take a minute to rate and review this podcast so we can reach more people. Mm-hmm.